Welcome everyone to Plugged and Unplanned. It's Tony Nash back with you at Booktopia and today I have Glenn James, the author of Sort Your Money Invested, creator of My Millennial Money. Welcome to the show, Glenn. Hey, Tony. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to this chat. And millennial money. So this is not for old codgers, baby boomers like me. This is this book, right? Sort your money out and get invested is for youngsters and and hopefully not following in the footsteps of us old blokes who took forever to get their money sorted. Um, um, tell us a little bit about, not so much the book, but yeah. about your background and what you do and um, why, why people follow you. Um, mm. I think we just want to know a bit more about you. Yeah, so I, I guess, you know, I actually left school when I was 16 because I hated school and I was only allowed to leave if I uh, found a trade. And, you know, so I did telecommunications and I did that for four and a bit years, did the trade. And I always had a, a personal interest in money and finance. And I remember probably when I was 15 years old, going to a community college on the weekend and doing a share investing course with all these retirees. And it was fun, you know, like talking about shares on a Saturday and there's this kid there. And so it was always in the background, you know, read a lot of personal finance books, just always found it encouraging. And then I completed my trade and I was like, oh, I want to really just, it was kind of pragmatic. Like the older I get, the less I want to be physically working and the more I want to not trade my time for money. So I, I knew I wanted to get into something that was maybe more white collar around my passion, which is money. And so I, I started a, a diploma of financial planning at a private college and then went and got an entry-level job at a, a firm in North Sydney. And I was there for five years. And then at 25-ish, I would have been, I started my own business and did that for about 10 years. And at, towards the end of it, I'd met a heap of business goals. It's kind of getting bored, wanted a new challenge. And I, I wanted to, to do one to many uh, in terms of my advice because it was starting to happen like, Every time you meet someone, a friend of a friend at a barbecue and like, they're just asking these same questions. And even like having some pre-retirees coming into my office for some pre-retirement planning, you know, they didn't need a pre-retirement plan. They just needed to learn how to manage their money. They just needed to get on a budget, get out of consumer debt. Like, and it's funny you said for millennials, like millennials, just my language, because that's what I am. And there's no magic pass from the laws of the universe of gravity. You can't get around gravity. Like you can for a short time, but you run out of fuel or you'll end up on another galaxy. Like you can't get around the basic laws of money. And so I was sick of telling people the same thing over and over again. And I knew that there was no real Aussie personal finance podcast uh, at the time for Aussies by Aussies on a mainstream type uh, platform. So I went to uh, a conference in the United States and I, I think that was in 2016 or 17, maybe 17 landed in Sydney, sent a text out while I was on the tarmac still like who wants to buy a financial advice business? <laughs> because I was like, I'm going all in baby. And, uh, and I'm like, I'm going to own this Island. That, that was my mindset. I was like, no one's doing this. I know I, I'm going to own this Island and, you know, if I see a gap in the market, I'll drive a truck through it. And, you know, because if it, if you do something and it doesn't work out, I didn't want regrets of, oh, I should have tried this or I should have tried that. So I just threw everything at it and started the podcast and always wanted to do a book for the last 10 years or more. And it's just right time to do it. Uh, my audience wanted a book. Uh, I had one kind of started. I had Scrivener, the news, had my structure there, had a bit of a chat, but I get distracted with right objects and I needed that accountability from somebody like Wiley uh, to set some deadlines. Mm. So boy, questions are piling up inside of me. So, so let's, let's 
sorry, there was a lot there. Yeah, but no, but was, let's just take you asked for it. <laughs> let's take the most obvious one. Mm. Um, well, it is to me. Maybe it is to people in the book industry. Mm. Um, how does this compare? Do you think to Barefoot Investor, which has sold uh, over a million, one point five million copies, mm. maybe even getting up to two million? I'm I'm not sure of the latest. So, um, what what are people going to find in what what do you and and Scott Pape do different? That well, I I actually talk about investing in my book, right? Like, <laughs> like to be to be blunt, and that book has helped so many people. And I guess the key differences is my book isn't just um, I'll I'll wind it back a bit. So, and I haven't met Scott. I have tried to get him on my podcast, but he's probably the most um, in demand you know person on the planet. Um, from what I can see from looking in, because I haven't met the guy and he's done a wonderful book and it's really hard. And thanks for asking me because no one's really asked what the difference is. And I'm waiting for someone to ask, but I hate talking about it because I don't want them to think I'm jealous or anything weird like that. Um, but from the, the differences that I see with my book and his book, he primarily did a follow the bouncing ball do this, call this company, read this script, open this bank account, open this super account, and all your problems will go away, have a date night, right? Awesome, it's helped so many people. I don't like that approach for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, when I started to write the book, I asked a lot of people in my community what they think is missing in a personal finance book. And the questions of, um, you know, it's not just about mum and dad and two kids, you know, so there's a whole diversity thing and, you know, not everyone's a Australian white family, you know what I mean? So that was one element that I addressed in my book. But secondly, from a professional um, lens, I can't tell somebody what exact product to use because I was a licensed financial advisor and in my mind that's illegal. And, you know, whether it is or not in a book with the media exemption and all that, I just wasn't going there. And I guess the difference as well with my style of writing was I wrote in the book from experience of sitting down with hundreds and hundreds of people face to face of what the real questions are for Aussies in Australia with their money. And... I think it's a natural progression from his book. Um, you know, he's the barefoot investor. That's his name. That's his column in the newspaper. There isn't that much investing in his book. So if you do want to, because the first foundation of your money is to get your money sorted with his buckets or your spending plan and all that stuff and getting all that baseline sorted, the next progression is, okay, now you can start investing. And more than half the book is actually on investing. Mm. And that's what I was about. It's, it's, um, you kind of answered it there or you said it there because I, it sounded like to me if you've, if you've bought Barefoot Investor and you've got, you got a lot out of it and you're looking for what's next, then perhaps your book is a good read because you're both published by the same company. And, and John Wiley uh, wouldn't just get somebody else to create another version of the same thing of Barefoot Investor because uh, well, it's not good for the author. Um, and it's not good for, for them. Well, it'd be considered bad business almost. Yeah. <laughs> so they obviously saw something like the angle that you had to go, let's mm. get behind Glenn mm. and to, and see if he can uh, create something. So, yeah, so it might, it might be that um, what's next and, and investing is very different than sorting your money out, even though you talk about sort your money out. Um, and I know that one of the things that, things that Scott's done has really created a framework for, for people to operate within to feel like they're they're um, progressing, getting somewhere, not feeling like they're stuck in the rat race and 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 struggling to mm. pay off their credit cards and so forth. So I, I will say as well, Tony, like there is a, a slight philosophical difference with our style as well. Um, Scott Pape style is get the cheapest of everything that you can where my, and don't necessarily like, and it was a problem for me from a professional level 
where he pretty much uses the language of you can't trust financial advisors. And he's a little bit older and sure, 20 years ago, it was probably a bit more wild west with financial advisors, but it just isn't like that anymore, particularly after FOFA, particularly just the future of financial advice reforms, particularly after the Royal Commission. So he kind of alienated a lot of professionals uh, with his book. And I wanted to bridge that gap to say, no, you, you do get what you pay for. Like it's okay to get professional help. It's okay to see an advisor. It's okay to see a mortgage broker. And yeah, so that was kind of a philosophical difference. Um, you know, my audience, you kind of attract who you are, right? Like attracts like, and I'm of the view that spend money, live life, enjoy it. And it's okay to spend a bit of money on, you know, fees if you like the product. Um, I, I used an example in the book that I compared one of the cheapest super funds in Australia versus separate um, option that was 1% more in fees. And the higher fee fund did 1% higher after fees. So you can't, you just can't go, what's the cheapest? That will be the best. And so I really didn't want to alienate professionals with this book. I want it to be the, the link between I need to sort my money out and see a professional one day, but I can, I can use this book to get to a baseline ready to engage with a professional. So can I ask you then, um, is this investing for if you've got your own self-managed super fund um, because you want to you want to take control? Is it just simply the extra cash that you have that you accumulate and you go, look, I'm going to put aside 10% every month for investing and then that starts to build up and then you you do that? Is it, or is it for both or is it for is it for um, just learning, like learn how to invest, just accumulate 10 grand and then go, right, let's take ourselves on a journey because you may as well go down grand on black if you're going to be, um, if you're not going to study it, if you're not going to master it. So what, when you think about it, or do you just simply go, look, this is the way you work with your financial planner and you, and this is what you've got to tell them and this is how you've got to structure it. So this is the, your risk profile, like, is this a, is this a DIY or, do you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of people that just simply go to their financial planner and go, mate, or, you know, depending on the sex, whoever it may be, but yeah. like you say to them, um, look, I, I really don't know anything about, you know, I just, I want to know that I'm invested. Um, they'll ask you a bunch of questions to work out your risk profile and you go, all right, here, this is what I'm going to put in. And then 10 grand becomes 13 grand over the course of two years. And everyone's happy because it keeps you ahead of head of inflation like yeah it's it's actually almost none of what you've uh described right um and the reason why like i I do touch on uh superannuation and self-managed super funds but the problem is and again this all comes back to my experience as a financial advisor dealing with people face to face and my own philosophy was i want to educate people enough for them to make their own decision so if you got $10,000 or if someone listening here has $3,000 to invest before they say, all right, I need to buy some shares or I need to do that. Let's step one back for one step back further. Let's talk about asset allocation. Let's talk about uh, what makes up an investment. Let's talk about your super fund, how they manage money for you. Let's talk about the different, um, whether you go direct to a market or you go to a platform to help with consolidated tax reporting. So with this, um, you did touch on the risk profile thing. Um, I did start with this baseline of what's inflation and then cascading up to, we've got inflation, we need to beat in. So, we can't really use cash long-term because technically it could be worth less over the long-term. So then we look at the trade-offs between risk and reward. And there's this theme throughout the book with risk and reward, uh, right from the start with uh, risk and reward. If you 
go out on your own and start your own business. You've taken a risk. You, the higher the risk, we talk about risk and reward with, you know, investing certainly, but we also talk about risk and reward with, um, int- like bank lending. So if the bank takes on more risk by giving someone money, if they're not a worthy borrower, well, they'll get more reward. And then we look at risk and reward in terms of an insurance policy. So there is this underlying theme through the book with a current, and again, it's this life principle like gravity, risk and reward, and it's in every area of our life. So the book, I've actually split the, um, I split the investing chapters into two parts. And the first part is kind of the theory. So all the stuff that we talked about, chapter five and chapter six is the practical. So the theory concepts that we look at in chapter six, I will look at real world investment funds, real world super funds, put them in charts, look at the tables and show people um, the theory in practice. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I'm just looking at your chapter headings now. So um, can I ask you though, yeah. um, the the book, like, do you feel like it's one of those books where you really do need to start to the beginning and kind of work your way through? Mm. It's kind of like, it's laid out, like, let me take you on, a, let me take you through an Ikea store and you'll go from you know, section one through to section 38 and oh, there's a the checkout, right? Yeah. Or can you just simply shortcut it like they do in an ikea store and you go oh, if you go through there you'll go from room five yep. to room 11 right and so you can kind of just shut your eyes and open it up on the day money right that must yep. be what i mean how, how can people use it um, so it's a very good question because i wrote this for somebody also like me who's a visual learner who needs practical examples who might be a bit ADD and can't concentrate for two minutes on something. So you'll see at the start of every chapter, there's a TLDR, too long, didn't read. And it just gives you bullet points. This is what we cover in the chapter. So if you go to the start of chapter five, I'll let you open that up. This is what we cover in this chapter. And at the start of the book, I actually say, you don't need to read the chapters in order. And when I was recording the audio book, I think I made this joke and that, I was like, you, you don't have to read the book in order, although it helps. Like, you don't have to listen to this in order, although it helps. Um, but yeah, certainly, you know, the debt, the debt and how to get out of debt chapter. Well, if you're out of consumer debt, don't read that chapter. It's all good. Mm. So yeah, I can see it now. Well, I have ADHD myself, so yeah. it's right up my alley. Yeah. Um, and And thank you for putting a book together that, works for me that's for sure um the so when when okay so that that's the way so do you feel if you were to if we were to carve up um the the pie yeah um educate um versus execution perhaps versus um outcome yeah example i'm just making them up but yeah the idea of look um a really like I'd be absolutely and at the end they go, yeah, I really know some stuff now. I really know about what, how it all works. And it's taken, it's, you know, lifted the veil. I've gone behind the, the back of the magic show and I've seen mm. how the tr- versus no, no, I'm really looking for a practical plan to be able to know that I'm, I'm going to have three investment properties and I'm going to have some shares that they're going to give me some passive income through fully frank dividends, et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, is it, is it something else? So, um... Yeah. Look, if I was going to put a percentage on it, I would probably say education and practical examples, 70%. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I actually wrote a big chapter there on mindset, uh, which is just such a huge issue. And, you know, I'm sure you being a wealthy, evil CEO, capitalist pig that you are, I'm sure you've got a couple of investment properties, right? I am laughing. Yeah, that's right. For those that are listening (laughs) in the background, like you can't, um, yeah. Yeah, He's smiling. Yeah. Dr. Evil. Yeah. I felt the temperature of this chat before I said that. Um, But in terms of mindset, right? 
growing up, like I live on the central coast, uh, suburbia, working class family, you know, buying an investment property just was a little bit out of reach. They're just, oh, that's what the rich people do. Oh, but the mindset piece, you've got to unplug from what you've been brought up understanding. And I'd met with plenty of clients who had really good incomes, really good equity in their home. They just couldn't get that mindset across to take that risk to buy the investment property or invest in shares or, or whatever that is. The lie from an old generation. They believed, um, I don't know where I'm going with that, but all that to say, um, you know, certainly 10% of that pie would be on the, the correct mindset. And I jokingly called the chapter, make it rich. Uh, or I wonder, what did I call it, Tony? Here we go. Get uh, get rich and make it rain, something like that. The Which chapter? Chapter two. Get rich and make it rain, mindset and money. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, I have the uncorrected proof, so you may have changed it between yeah. now and... Oh, I think I just changed one chapter name and the, the only copy I've got was a printing error. It doesn't have the index at the start. <laughs> I'm still waiting on mine because it's uh, it's been so popular. They haven't sent me my copies yet because uh, they wanted them in the um, in the warehouse. But if I can get you to go to page, see if you can go to page 70 and see if there's that image of the house around page 70. It may have changed since your copy. Yeah, it's 72 on mine. Yep. Yeah. So the sound financial house, like swinging back around to when you said, is it for education? Are you following the bouncy ball and telling people to just execute this, this, and this? Or is it um, giving a framework? So this diagram here, I used it with every client of mine that came into my practice. And you made it up? Yeah, I drew it on the whiteboard live. Um, mm -hmm. And I actually developed it and I share the story in the book about, you know, on the next page, how did the sound financial house come about? And it was, you know, 30, a guy in his thirties come, came into my office. He wanted to invest in shares, which is awesome. Like anyone who wants to invest, I love that, but he already had two or three investment properties. You know, he had a good car, must be successful, but he had a car loan. He didn't have a budget. He still lived with mummy and daddy. And I'm just like, dude, You've just got to chill out one sec. You're putting the cart before the horse here. And I drew this house on the board. I said, mate, you're building this big house with no foundations. So if you want me to help you, we need to swing back around and do the foundations. And I kind of just use this. So for those listening and in the actual book, it is page 70, foundation one, you know, get a spending plan, get a budget, just have some type of system. Foundation two, be cashed up and debt free. So we want to be cashed up with an emergency fund and we want to be consumer debt free. So out of, you know, credit card, personal loans, we want to get our personal protection in place, our income insurances, because everything we do in our financial life centers around income walking into our bank account each week or each fortnight, right? And if that stops, well, show's over. So we have to protect that. And then the fourth foundation is wills and estate plan. So we want to focus on getting all that done first. The slab of the house is super because everyone's really got a super account. And then once we set up our foundations, we can then go, okay, well, I've got my budget and I've got $300 a month left over. I might put $100 of that money to the future investing and $200 towards some lifestyle goals. And so my vibe is, Tony, concepts i'll show you whatever you want but if you want good longevity with your finances don't build your financial house on sand build it on solid foundations it's a great it's a great um image and page and and for just over 30 bucks guys who are listening um that's cheap in terms of just for one page just to have a look at i get into your local bookshop, buy it online, Booktopia, anywhere else. Um, you've, you've done well, Glenn, in terms of the, in terms of what you've kind of laid out there. I just wanted to ask you for myself yeah. personally, now looking at that, you say in there, it's got saved for your first home. Yeah. But it doesn't say own your first home either. So, it, so it's kind of, is this like a trajectory of things that need to be in play 
that ultimately will then, um, you know, like you, you upgrade to a new house or you, and so therefore there'll be these, you've got those things. So just explain a little. Yeah. So the, the walls of the house are lifestyle goals and there are some bricks on the house that are empty and that's just kind of been a legacy because I used to just ask clients like, oh, what do you want to do? And they're like, oh, we want to go to Prague in eight years or whatever it was, two years. So we would write Prague in there or I want to learn to fly my helicopter or get a helicopter's license. Mm -hmm. So we might put helicopter license. So lifestyle goals are anything that's in your life outside of your day-to-day -day budget, right? Mm -hmm. And because the day-to-day -day budget is taken care of as a foundation, and the spending plan that I teach in my online course, it has an automated spreadsheet and it'll work all this out for you. But saving for your first home uh, deposit is actually a lifestyle goal because people might not want to save for a home. They might want to rent in a city and live life and love it. Mm. Um, it might be a lifestyle goal that we want to pay down our mortgage and not invest for the future just yet. And I was a little bit cheeky at the top uh, see how there's investment property one, investment property two, share portfolio and other complex investments. So investing for the future, that's the house, right? And it's a triangle. I did put investment property one and two kind of first there because to buy a property, you need more capital than just buy $1,000 worth of shares. So if it is in your financial strategy that I want to buy an investment property, then buy some shares, well, let's get the big rocks done first. So I would assume that that would be before you cash flow some shares. And then the other complex investments, you know, I had a client that uh, sat down with me and they said, Glenn, we've got this opportunity to buy some rare pink diamonds. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And, you know, they were ethical diamonds and all that. And they said, and I said, well, how much do you want to buy? They said, we want to buy a hundred grand or something worth of these pink diamonds. And a lot of people listening might go, that's ridiculous. How can you do that? But, you know, they had their super, they paid off their home, you know, other complex investments like that. I, my house view is that you wouldn't want more than 10% of your total net worth allocated to such speculative wild things. And I said, yeah, you got all the money in the world hundred grand worth of something specky or personal interest, whatever, do it, go on, enjoy. And, you know, they just showed me the photo. It probably would be like three diamonds in the palm of your hand. Like people think hundred thousand dollars worth of diamonds. Like, yeah, it's like one or two little things, but uh, so that's the natural progression. And that same logic I use in the book with, uh, I call it my money hierarchy when building our personal budget. Do you want to have a quick look? Mm. Have you got time? Yep. Go on. Because it, it will um it will tie in nicely. It might be around page 112 for you. Yeah, 112, yep. Yeah. So yep. um so the bottom of yours is it figure 4.2? 4.1, 4. 4.2, 4. yep. Yeah. So Figure 4.2 on page 113, I made this hierarchy similar to the investment hierarchy in the Sound Financial House about doing things in the right order. So like we're not buying speculative diamonds when we don't have any other investments. Like it's just, it's a diversity play, right? You know, let's say that for later. Um, when we build our personal budget, we want to do things in the right order. And this is based on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think two pages before that everyone's heard of. And it's along the same things. Like if you can't afford basic food and shelter, you're not worried about going on a eight week yoga retreat in India, are you? Like, cause it's survival. So around the, the, my money hierarchy, I talk about set your thing, get your baseline happening, get basic comforts, get some luxuries, then you might get a premium luxury. You might buy a, a fancy brand car. Like you, you're not buying a, I'm going out on a limb. Like you're probably not buying a Maserati if you're in working class suburbia earning $60,000 a year. It'd just be considered lunacy. I mean, I don't care what anyone else does, but I'm certainly 
you know, covering off some other things first. And then unless, at the very unless you're a mechanic who's looking to to tune it up and you know that's their pro weekend project. Sure. Yeah. They can turn thirty grand into sixty grand or eighty grand, then you know, don't give it to me. I'm the last person that's going to be able mm. to do a project like that. And then at the top of the pyramid, you know, once you've done all your other baseline, basic comforts, luxuries, premium luxuries, it's whatever. And this came about, I actually drew this uh, in front of some clients as well, because they came in and they didn't have any money. Their electricity bill was behind, but their kids were in private college. Mm. And I said, guys, I've won every child or I want every parent to be able to send their kids to private school if they so wish. But your problem here, it's actually a luxury. And by world standards, Australian public school is a luxury. Let's be, you know, frank here. And I said, your problem is you put something that is a luxury in as a baseline necessity. And that's why your energy bill is overdue because you've got everything around the wrong way. So I guess by those two examples with your personal budget, Tony, and the sound financial house, their illustrations, their diagrams, it's worked. The concepts have worked for thousands of people through my online course and teaching face-to-face. -face. It is that philosophy of let me show you so you can make your own decision based on a structure or guide. I'm not dogmatic to say you need this bank account. You need the cheapest fund here because it's the cheapest. It's no, 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 no. Here's a framework that you can plug your own personal situation into because everybody's situation is different. Can I ask you this awful and embarrassing and nasty question? Um, how many people in financial planning or financial advisory or telling people how to sort out their money don't have a lot of money or aren't like they are struggling to make payments or like is you've been and you've been to these conferences you know mm. in the industry mm. like for someone to be um offering advice so i'm kind of asking you potentially to fess up and and you know how are you doing yeah kind of situation like because it, it does worry me that there's people out there offering advice or psychiatrists who complete you know like in their own lives they're completely stuffed up and and um and you know any profession where they're supposed mm. to be an expert in but they're not they actually um if you really looked at where they're up to is um embarrassingly poor you know doctors who aren't taking care of their health and yeah well, like and we've drugs. all heard of the gp who smokes like that's right so yeah. so how many people in in the financial advisory world um re maybe they're on track and you go look that's where they are today but quite frankly they've got all the things in play to ultimately be able to retire successfully sure they don't they don't they aren't worth millions or they don't have they they can't as you said before they can't take uh leave, you know leave their job and then be able to go look i really don't need to work i just choose to work um is it is it really um is there a lack of not integrity but is there a lack of of you know, like ethical kind of yeah i um i'll tell you a story that will bring this home nicely but i think before i tell that story um as a financial professional because given we've all got to start somewhere right and there is a higher barrier of entry to get into financial advice now and all that you've got to really um you know do an almost like a bar exam and do a professional year and all that stuff so the bar has lifted i would probably say for any you know upcoming advisors listening to this you've got a personal responsibility to make sure you are walking the talk so that's like a number one thing like you've got your own personal responsibility because tony like i i you know I was 25 when I started my business and I went to see a medical specialist once who needed some advice. And this individual had an income of over $2 million. And I was a 25 year old who just started my business. 
and didn't have that much money behind me. So there are factors at play that, well, okay, to start my own business, I need to invest my own money and start from scratch. So I don't have much money. And I was a bit like intimidated going to see this medical doctor earns $2 million a year. Like, and I was sitting in his waiting room and I was thinking, hang on, he knows nothing about superannuation. He knows nothing about the insurances that he needs. He knows nothing, I'm being dramatic here, about uh, estate planning and structure. So that gave me the confidence to actually sit down. And there is a bit of bedside manner as well when you're an advisor because you have to you know, have a high level of EQ or whatever they call it. So, so there is that dance of, you know your stuff book smart, but also you have to be, have some practical experiences. Like I refer people to financial advisors through my website in the book and on the podcast, but to be a, a, an advisor on my approved list, you've got to be authorized for more than five years. So I won't send anyone that comes to me for a recommendation to an advisor unless they do have five years worth of experience. Um, so there is that dance and absolutely somebody who's just finished uni knows a lot more than um, the doctor in the next street about strategy. The problem is they don't have as much life experience possibly. So that comes into play. Uh, but I think it is getting better with uh, professional standards. And I don't know if I've answered your question, but I'll finish with this, with this story that will maybe answer your question. I had a business in uh, a joint venture uh, with an accountant in Potts Point. And for those listening, Potts Point, it's a little bit exclusive. Uh, you know, that's not the cheapest place to live in Sydney. It's, uh, it's quite nice. Tony, you probably live there yourself. Uh, <laughs> nope. um, my, grand, my grandparents came from overseas uh, with nothing in their pockets and ended up there mm. uh, in the 40s when it was not the greatest place to be and it was you know, King's Cross, CD. Um, so um, it has certainly transformed over the years. Yeah. yeah. So I, I had a business there and I was 26 years old, you know, doing financial advice. And I think Tony, the advantage I had, I had actually left school at 16 and worked in the real world. So I had a lot of practical life experience, uh, which really helped me. And for those up and comers who want to be an advisor, or want to be a professional, this or that, just go work in an office in the background and just see how the world works before you just go and want to run the world. But anyway, that's a whole other discussion on almost like every, every, every job needs an apprenticeship. That's all I'm saying. Um, anyway, this lady came in worth heaps of money. She wanted advice on a super fund, you know, we we're setting up a self-managed super fund. And she said to me, why should I like, and kid you not, why should I listen to you? have you got more money than me? Like you're only like, you're quite younger. And it was quite profound, my response. And I was a bit proud of it, Tony. <laughs> I said, I'm so glad you asked me that because with respect, you've got about 50 years up on me in terms of wealth accumulation, number one. So it's just not going to be possible for me to have as much as you given my age, but I can guarantee you, according to my peers, people the same age, I'm worth about 10 times as much as them. Shut her up. She loved it. So I don't know if that answered your questions or if it was just a nice story, but it's a legitimate thought and I would also challenge that logic to a point as well. Like I've had seven ankle operations on my right ankle by an ankle specialist at Chatswood, really, you know, top guy. He might not have ever operated on his own ankle. Does that make him bad? So it's we're getting into philosophy here and I kind of love it, but it's a good question because, you know, people's money is very, very um, important and can't be dicked around with. I mean, that, that's the thing though, is as you, you want to, you want, you need to build trust and therefore 
um, you you do want to know when it comes to money that the person that you are confiding in and strategizing with that they they have they have done it or that they to the best of their knowledge and the things that they've done this has really worked for them and it's working for their clients and therefore um, it's a it's a strategy that you get to choose whether that you want to you know take that on yourself and and but, well it's, i guess it's more about the fact maybe not about yourself glenn but about other financial planners or people who are offering financial advice mm. and and how many of them really um are not are like that doc the doctors who are not taking care of their, their health or mm. um, using drugs to keep them going and all the you know all the unethical things that may go on or, yeah, I, I'm sure it's out there. I mean, from me personally, my trusted panel of financial advisors that I recommend people to and mortgage brokers, I know that they're successful in their own right and do walk the walk. So the bit of the universe that I can control, I do think it's a big deal. Like, sure, as you're younger, it's harder to get, you know, wealth behind you, particularly if you want to start a business. Like, I started my current media business, you know, thankfully I had my own capital, but I didn't draw any income out of it for the first two years. And, you know, you have to start somewhere. Uh, but certainly I think it's, but it goes back to human nature, like those who can't do teach, right? That's the, the old saying. Um, but like anything, you, if, if you are engaging a professional uh, to really help you, you really want to make sure that you do ask the questions that you do have the right, um, the right relationship, the interaction. And I thought it was actually, um, funny, like growing up, you know, Oh, I was under 30 doing quite well. And you know, the tall poppy syndrome in Australia, is just wild. I mean, I don't know if you've experienced it, but one thing like, cause I love my cars, right. But I never want like, you know, up in, you know, uh, working class Australia, like, you know, you're a rich wanker with a BMW, you know, that type of vibe. Like I didn't buy a BMW or Mercedes because of that. I bought a Lexus, you know, better value, just as good luxury and performance. No one blinked an eye. Mm. Like, so I just, and I still have a Lexus. I've had three. I love them. Um, but it's funny, like on my podcast, I now don't talk about my own, success um i'll talk concepts i won't talk dollars because oh people just rip you to shreds and it's this notion that if i can't have this you can't either and it's just i i just don't get it like it's public knowledge that i like my watches you know sure you might spend ten thousand dollars on a watch like i've got an amiga watch love it right people get outraged how can you have that that's ridiculous but in the same episode, I'll say, yeah, and I've got a second car, which is a Ford Ranger to tow my boat. No one cares about that because boats and Ford Rangers are everywhere. But it's like, no, no, you know how much money's tied up in the freaking Ranger and boat? <laughs> like, it's, it's, so let, let's, um, I'm totally with you on all of that. And I think what you're talking about is butting up against people's belief systems and values and, and mm. their own um limitations in terms of what's stopping them which helps them justify their their you know state of mind which you talk about in your book how early should we really be like um a, a parents listen to this or hears about your book and to then do a young adults edition or like you you left school at 16 um if this was taught in school if there was if this was um taught like okay you you're leaving school, so we're going to do a year of of mastery around your money before mm. you go to uni or start doing a trade or something like. How um, how important is it to to kind of permeate through the mind and thinking and values of the younger generation so they don't inherit these limiting beliefs? And do you do any work in that area? Have you done work in schools or what? Oh. Yeah, I'm actually going to um, take 
uh, I've got a friend who's a year advisor for a local year 12, a local uh, school. I'm going to take, there's 60 kids in year 12. I'm going to take, you know, 50 books up and give to her to, to give to the students. Um, I've done a little bit. It's funny. People go, oh, do you think all this stuff should be taught in schools? And to be honest, my honest answer is I'm, I'm not going to comment on what should be in the school curriculum because every single industry, every single lobby group wants their thing taught in schools, right? So I'm just like, look, I'm not qualified to comment, but I would say if they were going to do money stuff in schools, the problem I would have is they would focus on the theory too much and um, well, like one of the myths in the book, there's a chapter like My Money Myths and uh, all that is, you know, you've got to be smart to be wealthy and, you know, you focus on the, the theory side, it just gets lost. We need to focus on the habits and the behavior side of actually managing money because mm. if you nail the habits and behavior side, you won't be spending as much you won't be wasting as much. Sure, okay, we've got money. Now we can learn how to invest it. But if we put the cart before the horse and start teaching kids about inflation and dollar cost averaging into super and, you know, buy, sell spreads, it's like, well, who cares? Like, so, yeah, I I don't know. I, it's, it's a behavior thing. Like I've had clients that earn over 400 grand a year who have 50 grand in a credit card that just can't shake it. And... It just means someone earning 70 grand a year without any consumer debts actually doing better. Like, yeah, correct. Um, but hey, it's, um, it's a wild book. Uh, and I, I really must thank Wiley uh, because you might have, um, you, I think you stocked this book and we won't say what the book is, but see this book here. Can you read that? Yeah. yeah. Um, that book here is 60,000 words, right? And... I was contracted to write 60,000 words. So they sent me a few like this to say, yeah, we'll do that. And I went to New Zealand to write the book because um, I wrote it in uh, six weeks and I got to 60,000 words and I called Wiley and I said, you've got some problems here, people. Um, I ain't finished and I'm not stopping. And they said, all right, just go for it. And we ended up submitting, I think, 95 or more thousand words. So it's bigger than um, the other popular personal finance books. And thankfully, Wiley did make the actual size of it. And like, you've seen the size of it. Like they did actually make it more of a textbook type thing. Mm. Um, and yeah, I really must thank them because they keep calling me an author. And I'm like, don't call me an author. I'm not an author. I'm just a guy who wrote a freaking book. Mm. And I'm not doing it ever again. So back off everyone. It's a bitch <laughs> of a job. <laughs> That's good. So there's no um, Tolkien trilogy happening here. Oh, if I do another one, it'll be on small business and transitioning uh, because that's my, um, that's really my passion, small business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, that's what I would do it on probably that transition from employment to self-employment. We have Glenn James with us. Sort your money out and get invested. Create a, creator of My Millennial Money. That's um, a website and podcast correct yeah yep and th that's a good point to to small business and transition is your passion uh, this is the part of the show where i get to throw the the microphone over to you You get to ask a few questions yeah of me um and as i always say the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions that you ask so mm. let's hear what someone who's an expert on money and investing um, is going to throw at me and please consider his questions those that are listening and take these questions on yourself and maybe you'll have your own answers but i'll i'll fess up mine so again in the same spirit when you kind of asked me that question that you felt like a you know a bit curly um I, I also like when I do my interviews on my podcast, I just tell people, just tell me to shut up. If you're not comfortable answering it, tell me to shut up. So we know Booktopia, you've worked hard, you've probably given a lot and all the crap that people see today, people don't see, you know, the drama that you've had to deal with, the, just the crap, right? So, you know, it's, it's pretty public that the company turns over a lot of money. Um, my question, like to any business owner, 
are you actually taking home a decent amount for the risk that you've taken on? Yep. I mean, it's publicly listed how much money I earn and yep. and the shares that I have in Booktopia. Yeah. And my brother and my brother-in-law, um, in our our equity still in the company. Yeah. Um, is is significant. We've been able to get some money off the table through the process over the mm. years. So we uh, we're all in a very good position. So from that aspect, um, it's been a mission accomplished. However. Um, there was no guarantees. There was no like, oh yeah, we're definitely um, heading to a destination where we're going to get this kind of outcome. So um, it was just really one thing led to another. And I started Booktopia when I was um, 40, uh, 40 years old. So this is not some start my business when I'm 25. My first business I started when I was 33. And and so there was a you know, few iterations along the way. But um, but from, a, I don't, when, what you were talking about there is a little bit, you know, like it's a hard slog to me, uh, my mindset is that, uh, when you're in business, expect things to come out of left field. So when they do come, it's like, yeah, bring it on. Because mm. if that's what you want me to jump over, I'll jump over it. And mm. so quite often you'll, you'll see in your people that have worked with me, um, a surprise sometimes at the at my reaction to when things may not work out the way that we expected. And um, by staying calm and and grounded, it means that I've been able to perhaps deal with a lot of the challenges that um, running a business will, will deliver us. So, Do you find over time, like as the age of the business and the age of you personally and life experience, because I've certainly learned this, like the more money you get behind you, the more, well, the less you'll put up with crap, right? Because it's just like, I just don't need the drama. Like, have you found your confidence grown? Like, cause even my team, like they'll say, oh, we were approached by this company and they want to advertise and, you know, we've got our rate card, right? And they said, oh, can you do it for this? I say, no, tell them to get stuffed. If they want to advertise, that's the price. We are price makers here. We're not price takers. And my team kind of like, oh, how can you turn that down? Like, how's your experience been with that commercial confidence over the years? Um, tricky one to answer. There's a few things with regard to that. First of all, um, let's start with that idea about small business transition. Um, I've always felt that Booktopia is its own organism. It's not me. So when Booktopia wins you know, Telstra Business, uh, you know, of the year, or or uh, gets listed, it's Booktopia that's getting it. It's not Tony Nash. So mm. that separation has meant that I've not um, projected my values, my ego, my uh, who I am. I'm the CEO of Booktopia, so um, that means this. It's right. Well, I mean, it does mean something that I'm the CEO of Booktopia, but it. Um, 220 million revenue in FY21 is not me and 200. It's a company with 270 people working in it and lots of customers buying from us. So, mm -hmm. so um, what what I've experienced in terms of that small business transition, um, I'll, I'll share with, share this with you. When um, when I was um, so 1991, so 28, I did a workshop called money in you with Robert Kiyosaki, rich dad, poor dad. And, and I was a IT recruiter. I had 15 contractors working for me. And every time at the time when I was working, every time I get to 20, like I'd be on my way, I get, and then I'd go back down to 15 and then oh. I get up to 20 and I go back to, down to 15. And I did this workshop money in you and thinking it was about money, but actually was my, was more about you. Right. And, and so I, I did this workshop, found out a lot of things about myself, about my beliefs, about how I felt about money. And I went to 30 contractors working for me in three months. So I literally mm. paid for my course because I had, I had great insight around how I was operating, but then I dropped back down to 24 and then I get up to 30 and then I dropped down. So then I did another workshop creating wealth, which then I went to 45 and then I get down to 35 and back up. And, the, and so there was these feelings that I was kind of, creating because I'd got to a certain level and I needed to unpack and, un, 
understand myself to let them go so I could then move to greater. In the end, I think I ended up with like 130 contractors working for me. So I mm. continued to you know, throw rocks out of my backpack that were weighing me down. So that lesson, um, and that's then the idea of having separation when I started my own business, that I am not my company, I believe has helped Booktopia get to the scale that it is because it's not me. So, mm. and Booktopia doesn't have an ego. Booktopia doesn't have a um, belief system about itself to, to sabotage itself. And, and I think that learning or that lesson for any of you know, the people that are listening today or people perhaps that are, that, um, are gonna buy your book and, and, and following yourself, that's been super, super important in terms of why Booktopia is the only company ever to make the BRW or now the AFR past 108 times and has had um, 17 years of average revenue growth of around 25 or 30% um, year on year. Yeah, and you've done very well. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating. Do you think some of it was um, right place, right time, right thing? Um, hold on. No, that's all right. No, no, I, to everyone, I'm just letting my next meeting know that I'm finishing off a podcast. You guys are more important. It's an internal meeting. Um, <laughs> just letting one of my team members know. Um, sorry, uh, Glenn. Uh, no, what was, um, oh, like, yeah. Do you think, um, you know, age 40, um, you started Booktober, you saw something, you was, do you think it was right place, right time, right thing? So it was one thing led to another. So the, the one thing I'll tell everyone is that, um, and I've said it many times before, but repeating, we've asked one question every day, what do our customers want? Mm. And by going searching for that answer, um, we have ended up where we are today. So it was a side project started on a $10 a day budget. So there was no light bulb moment. There was no like, oh, I've seen a gap in the market. And when I started, people said, what do you want to start a bookstore for? You know, there's Borders, there's Amazon, there's Dimmicks, there's Angus and Robertson. You're too late. Mm. And now people say to me, oh, it's lucky you got in early. So it's, it's one of those uh, things where you just simply feel like you've got to, you, we're going to get to that, you know, that um, lamplight or that the end of the road, like it's a, we're going to get to that mountaintop and we're going to get and then you oh there's another mountaintop and then so it kind of one thing led to another and as time went on you, you we started to see that there was something here that was that was unexpectedly big and and so that it was there was never any certainty around it hey um the the decision to list was that um a capital play or a legacy play or both? Mm, quite often people um, say to you uh, when you're thinking of listing, you, oh, you don't want to list. There's just all this other uh, regulation. There's, there's, a, you know, there's a lot of reporting. Yeah, we um, just outsource it. <laughs> there's a lot of work, right? That's true. You outsource. It's still cost, right? Yeah, that's there's right. Yeah. The, business. the thing for me was that Booktopia being a, an e-commerce retailer, um, you're getting talked about all the time. So if you're listed, you get talked about more often. And that was free marketing as far as I was concerned. So there was the cost to list in our business. Like it's different if you're doing, um, I don't know, helicopter machine parts or something and you, you list cause you get access to capital yeah. and, and, um, you're a big global company, but nobody really knows about you. You do that for a certain reason. So for me, capital, um, yeah. Um, that does give you access to capital, but it also, because e-commerce was through the pandemic, had moved from the side wings into center stage. Um, it was an opportunity for us to, to make sure that the business had the right framework in terms of access to capital, to be able to grow, um, and to, to also for, for our customers to own shares in the company, and mm. let alone, of course, there's lots of fund managers and funds that own us and so forth. But um, we liked the idea that um, that we you know we didn't need to own it all, and it was about making sure that uh, there was that legacy there. So in some ways, um, it was Booktopia is its own, as I said, is its own business, and therefore being listed gives it the opportunity of of having uh, even greater um, greater outcomes for itself in terms of global expansion, in terms of in terms of doing 
what it can possibly do in Australia. I felt like we could do it without being listed, to be fair. Mm. Um, uh, it's it, We've always grown organically. We did our first capital raise when our revenue was 150 million. So it's mm. not as if we needed it. Um, it just means you can get, get things done quicker. Um, can I ask two more questions? Go on. Because we've both got to go. And what I'll do, Tony, I'll share this episode with uh, with my audience and in our Facebook group because there's about 35,000 people in there and mm -hmm. um, they'll love to hear this. Because uh, I'm not... It's funny, Tony, like when I share myself, I don't actually be as candid when I'm on my own podcast because people get bitchy and all that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but when I talk to other people, I don't know, I'll just tell you how it is. And I can send the real fans who like to hear what I have to say to other podcasts to mm -hmm. hear the real Glenn where I can just be me a bit more rather than have a structure to the episode. Um, team culture, like I've dealt with a fuel wheel team now, um, you know, with this process and uh, we use Booktopia affiliate, affiliate links on our website and whatnot and Arthur's been great um, over the, the course of the couple of years that we've done that. Um, What's it been like for team culture to ensure that, you know, you've got these hundreds of people who are there, not just because it's a J-O-B. Like, what are you doing with team culture? We're, we're continuing to develop that. Over the years, what I've um, experienced because of our rapid growth and people who are in the company have had the opportunity for their resume to be enhanced by taking on roles that uh, they would have not normally had a chance to get. So, and I like that being an ex recruiter. I like the idea of someone coming into our company and then kind of being able to leave and have all these other skills to make themselves more valuable in, in the world. So I'm not a great, I obviously make some sort of impact on the culture, um, but the team, quite frankly, is making their own culture. The, the guys are, are doing it themselves in terms of creating, making a, a fun place to work, making sure that everyone's being taken care of. Um, I, I'm, I get inspired by sales and outcomes and results and creating new things. I'm an entrepreneur, so I want to, I want to come up with great new ideas. So I'm not necessarily always focused on the culture. Um, but I do, for example, at the moment, I'm sitting in on the distribution center um, stand-ups at 8 a.m. I'm hearing mm. what they're going on. I've then gone to the other stand-up, which I'm in, which is more of the the executive or the, the the leaders of the company each day who are kind of getting together. I said, guys, you've got to listen to what those guys are talking about. It's inspiring. And with mm. all the stuff that's going with COVID and resourcing and how they're dealing with it and automation issues. like um, So I think just being present and being, from my perspective, and listening is super, super important. But I... I can tell you this, that when someone comes in and resigns, I say to them and have done all my life that I've been in, well, 25 years of running my company. Wow, where are you going next? Because if you don't want to be here, you're going to be going somewhere else spectacular. And you're also creating a space for someone else to come in and go on the journey with us. Mm. And that, that idea of trying to hold on to people and losing them is really like, I was a recruiter. I pinch people from other companies and put them into other companies. Right? That's the way it works. Mm. I think that's a really important thing about letting go of, of trying to hold on to your, uh, that you think you've got knowledge experts that you can't afford to lose. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> do you do any in terms of employee benefits or anything like that? Oh, uh, there's quite a few. I mean, there's, geez, there's training, there's um, access to systems and of course books and, Lots, lots of um, programs. There's lots of events. Certainly during the pandemic, we've had lots of online events at home. There's two teams, right? There's the people that are working in the office and then there's this distribution center. So that distribution center get taken care of cheeseburger days and I don't know, whatever else. Uh, I can't keep up with it. Um, yeah. But I know that it's an important um, part. And quite frankly, if you said, okay, score yourself out of 10 with what the guys have told me what they want to do, I'd say we're at a three. Now, mm. um, where we are today was would have looked like a probably an eight a few years ago. So mm. um, it's just, um, you can you can never do enough, but it all also costs. So um, profitability is, is also comes into the equation. How do I get my uh, spending plan into the arms of all your employees? 
But my online well, course. Um, you should definitely talk to our um, our careers and development, or I don't know, probably with someone in HR, or um, I might maybe. ask you for an intro because we run the um, the spending plan as an employee benefits um, package mm-hmm. uh, because it you know everyone loves books, but sometimes the people like me need the visual stuff, right? And it's just a series of videos and yeah, great. And, um, but no, I I just think it's fascinating what you've done. Uh, what you said you had two questions, so you've had one. What well, yeah, it was just around the culture and then employee benefits. Yeah, um, that was a leading question, obviously, towards your your yeah, program. You've always got to be selling, right? Yeah, mate, that's the way. Hey, <laughs> everyone who's listening, that is an important part of success, right there, where you ask a question, where you know where it's heading, and and look, Glenn, thanks so much for coming on the program. It's been great to meet you and to hear what you've been up to and your success as a youngster leaving school and, and everything that you've accomplished. Very inspiring. Well done. No, thank you. And I've certainly, um, you know, I actually, it was funny before we press record, I was thinking today, I'm like, I wonder how we can turn this so I can ask Tony some questions about business because I just like chatting about stuff. Like, because one thing, the reason I asked about legacy is like, this current business, like my last business was the financial planning. It's certainly around me as the, the individual and it's hard to scale, but what I've created with the new platform around the brands of, cause we do seven or eight podcasts. I'm thinking legacy is like, okay, if I die tomorrow, my millennial money can't die. Mm. It's got to keep going. Mm. And so it's a serious thing that I'm considering at the moment, the whole legacy piece. Mm. Yeah. When you get to a certain size, Booktopia is of that size, of course. Mm. I mean, I, play a certain certain part but there's there's many people in this in this company who are running it and the 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 key is to how can you make yourself redundant mm. so you're still adding value you're still there but um whether you're there or not there the business is powering on and that's yeah that's that's it but that's the problem with um um entrepreneur type personalities like i can have the vision set up the systems once it's going if i go back and try and help the team i wreck it so <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Glenn, we could go right. for a couple of hours here. We will leave it there. We, thank you so much. Congrats on the book. And we look forward. It's coming out for those who are listening to it. It's probably already out. But uh, yeah. for the rest of us who are listening, well, I'm listening today. It comes out in a couple of days, uh, the 1st of October. And congratulations. And we look forward to crossing paths again. Glenn Certainly James, will. All Thanks, mate. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au